Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. In Ian e. Bounds' book, The Possibilities of Prayer, he says, In this connection, let it be noted that God's promises are always personal and specific. They are not general, indefinite, or vague. They do not have to do with multitudes or classes of people in a mass, but are directed to individuals. They deal with persons. Each believer can claim the promise as his own. God deals with each one personally, so that every saint can put the promise to the test. Prove me now, herewith saith the Lord. No need of generalizing nor of being lost in vagueness. The praying saint has a right to put his hand upon the promise and to claim it as his own. One may especially for him and one intended to embrace all his needs, present and future. Jeremiah once asked, once said, speaking of the captivity of Israel and of its ending, speaking for Almighty God after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good work towards you in causing you to return to this place. But this strong and definite promise of God was accompanied by these words coupling the promise with prayer. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. This seems to indicate very clearly that the promise was dependent for its fulfillment on prayer. The promise was dependent on its fulfillment upon prayer. We come to what I think is the most tragic account in the life of the disciples. At a point when they should have been at their highest, when everything was going their way, coming off the Mount of Transfiguration, those three disciples that had beheld the glory of God, they come down into the valley. And it is a stark contrast of glory and of a world that waits for the church to respond with a sense of the glory of God. And so I want you to see three things tonight. First of all, I want you to see a pathetic picture of the powerless disciples. It's found in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Now let's just talk about the story a little bit. There was a demanding crowd there. Jesus and his three disciples came off that mountain and there were the nine other disciples surrounded by the scribes who were heckling them, mocking them, calling them phonies, hurling accusations at them, criticizing them for their lack of power. There was, in a sense, in this passage, the danger of a brawl breaking out. You had the dangerous crowd. You had a demon-possessed boy. You had his defeated father, and you had the, the defeated disciples. All had gathered together. Peter, James, and John come down off the mountain with Jesus. And the crowd sees Jesus and they rush to him. They have been around his disciples, but his disciples have not done what they should have done. Now, I see here some defeated disciples because they are unable to deal with this case. They are seemingly helpless. They did not fail to cast out the demons out of this boy because of a lack of desire. They failed because of a lack of faith. 
They failed because they had the right words and the right rituals, but they had the wrong results. They remembered that Jesus had said in Mark chapter 6 that he was giving them authority over unclean spirits. And they remembered that he had said and that they had promised and seen fulfilled that they were casting out demons. You see, somewhere between Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 9, tradition set in. I don't know how it happened, but these disciples that had been given authority over unclean spirits were now, just a few months later, unable to use that authority to cast out this demon. They were helpless. They were inadequate. They had not been able to fulfill the task. I think it's because... They must have cast the demon out one way and they said, boy, that works. I have to remember that I said that the next time I do that. And they did it again and it worked again. And they began to put their, put their faith in a formula or in a phrase and they lost the power. You know, we do that in our lives. Something works and we think, boy, I, I need to do that again. That worked. That sounded good. People responded to that. And we get into a formula and a set pattern for doing things and we're not open to the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God's trying to do and how He is trying to say it and speak to us and use us and we get caught up in a style rather than being caught up in the Spirit. These disciples had failed. They were talking about faith. I am sure that they assured this father that they had the power to cast out this demon, but their actions did not back it up. And so we come to verse 19, and Jesus says these words that must have cut them to the core. Oh, unbelieving generation. Oh, unbelieving generation. Now, the thing that you need to note about that is that Jesus was not talking to the demon-possessed boy, nor was he talking to his father. He was talking to his disciples. How long must I be with you? When will you ever learn? Jesus was tough sometimes on his disciples. And you know, it seems the disciples could take it because after all, they wrote down these words so that we could read them. We like to kind of polish everything up and always make ourselves look good. Jesus always has a way of stripping away our facades and showing us our weaknesses and our inadequacies. Somebody could ask a pastor of a church, how's your church spiritually? One guy says his church is 20 miles wide and one inch deep. You know how most churches are spiritually? They're not nearly as spiritual as they think they are. They haven't gone quite as far as they think they have. And this is one of those passages that points us back to this, for this passage could be directly addressed to the church today. We can no more dodge this question in verse 19 than those disciples could dodge it. How much longer, how much longer will it take me? And the church comes before God and we are rich and we have need of nothing and we have all kind of programs and equipment and buildings and yet the world comes before us and still asks the question, where's the power? I brought my son to you to cast out the demons and they could not do it. How many times has the world approached us with their needs and their hurts and their problems, and they have found the church inept and powerless 
to deal with the problems of the world. They have approached us, and these scribes approached the disciples, and they were cynical. They loved every minute. It says that they were arguing with them. That word can also translate they were debating with them. They were questioning whether they really even had power if it had all been a show, if they were just phonies. And in a world that is going to hell by the minute, in a world that is being caught in an undertow of ungodliness and pornography and greed and lust and sensuality, in that kind of world, people come to the church and still find in many instances a weak and inept and wimpy church. They do not find in us power and authority. They do not see us standing boldly in the name of Jesus. They see on our signs that Jesus is the answer, but they come inside and they don't find any solutions to their problems. They're still hurting. They're still longing. And verse 18 applies to us today when he says, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. They couldn't do what in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and 13, they could not do what they had been given power to do. That amazes me. And here's what happened. This man came to the disciples of Jesus believing that they had the power to do it. But because of their inability to deal with the needs in his life and in the life of his family, they began to doubt not only the disciples, they, he began to doubt Jesus. He began to doubt that there was, in fact, power. He was now questioning. And I think the world has every right. Looking at the American church in the 1990s, I think the world has every right to question us whether we really have the power. I think when they walk in the average church and it is prayerless and the baptismal waters are not stirred and Families are dividing and there's fragmentation and there's frustration and there's argument and fussing among people. I think the world has a right to look at us and ask the question, do you really have the power of God? <clears throat> now, I'm one of those that I, I don't ever like the way the media portrays preachers. I've never seen anything that, where the media portrayed preachers. Anytime I see anything that has a glimmer of hope in it, I'll try to write that producer or that director or somebody and say, thank you for doing that. Vance Havner said, I'd rather have a gangster preach on tithing than have a Hollywood producer try to portray the Bible. Uh, but you know, I, as I've thought about it, as I've thought about what we in, in the 90s are calling the cultural elite, the Hollywood establishment, a lot of those people in the music and entertainment business grew up in church. They grew up in traditional, staid, cold churches. And I'm going to tell you, if I was lost and I had gone inside the average church in America today and seen no more power than is evident in the average church in America today, I'd be out there criticizing the church with them. I think they've got a right to criticize the church. I think we either need to put up and produce what the power of God says we can produce, or we need to take down our sign and quit calling ourselves the church of Jesus Christ. You and I must realize that the church looks to us because they know the devil's told them that we're supposed to have power. Because the devil stands back and laughs at us and mocks us because we claim to have the answers and half the time we don't even know what the questions are. 
And so I see in this passage a real frustration in that Jesus is asking this question of us. How long have I got to be with you? Jerry Vine said, We are so compromised and so powerless in the face of the onslaughts of this world and so helpless before the media, no wonder the lost world walks by our churches and snubs their noses and says, They can't do it. They don't have any power. Secondly, I want you to see a pleading father before a powerful Savior. And I identify with this father. Verse 21, Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now notice what the Father says. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I like what Philip says right there. He says, Lord, I believe. Help me to believe more. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but out of all the people in the Bible, I may identify with this father the most. Lord, I believe you. But you're going to have to help me to believe you a little more. Lord, I trust you. Here's a demand. He calls the boy to be brought to him. He calls the father out. Now, you know why this father brought this child to Jesus. There's not a one of us that wouldn't take a beating instead of seeing our children hurt. We would do anything to keep our children from being hurt. And this man has compassion for his son, and he calls the man out, and he asks him the situation. And the man responds in verse 22 and 23 and says, If you can do anything... Now, he was beginning to doubt the ability of Jesus because the disciples weren't able to do anything. And he so closely associated the disciples of Jesus with Jesus himself that he began to say, Lord, if you can do anything. I know your disciples can't do anything. I've sat here and watched them not do anything. So, if you can do anything. Verse 23 says, if you can and Jesus responds and says, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, My ability is not the issue. Your faith is the issue. All that is going to happen or you want to happen hinges on your ability to trust me. Hinges on your ability to walk with me. Now, this is an abused verse. Jesus did not say in this verse, If you wish hard enough, you'll get what you want. Jesus did not say in this verse that all your dreams are going to come true if you trust in Jesus. He said that all things are possible to him who believes. You see, if it's any other way, then faith becomes man-made and man-centered. And faith is never man-made and man-centered. Faith is always God-centered. Faith is always directed at the Father. And anything that is not directed toward faith in God may disguise itself under the word faith, but it is walking around with an assumed identity. It is not biblical faith. Jesus calls his father to believe. And here are the two strategic questions that he is really asking this father and the two questions that I want to ask you tonight. These are the issues that we have to settle in matters of faith. Number one, do we believe that God can do anything? 
Do we believe that God can do anything? Oh, Lord, we believe you can do anything. I mean, we believe that the axe head swam. We believe that he parted the Red Sea. We believe that the waters of Jordan dried up. We believe that he raised the dead. Lord, we believe you can do anything. But now, Lord, that was then and this is now. Question number one that we have to answer is, do we believe God can do anything? Question number two, do we believe He will do what He's promised in His Word for us? Do we believe that He will do what He has promised in His Word for us? You see, it's one thing to believe something in the past. It's another thing to bring that belief up close and personal and see if it applies to you. And I find myself identifying with this Father. Lord, I believe, but you're going to have to help me believe more. I don't think there's one of us that hasn't felt like that Father. There's a time when the rug gets pulled out from under you, or your faith is tested, or you suffer, or you're caught in a moment of anxiety, or your family's going through problems, and somebody says, boy, God will see you through it. And you say, boy, I believe that. Deep down in your heart, you say, but Lord, you're going to have to help my unbelief. Lord, I hear you. I believe this book, and you stand there, and you sit in your prayer closet, and your children are backslidden and wayward, your family's falling apart, your job's going down the tubes, everything in your life is falling apart, and you sit there, and tears stream down your face and say, Lord, I believe you can do anything, but you're going to have to help my unbelief right now. You're going to have to help me to believe more because my faith is inadequate right now. It's insufficient. I'm falling short. No sooner do we tell God we believe in Him than the air of doubt goes flying through our heart. And we begin to say, Lord, I believe you. You see, the difference between us and the difference between us and this Father is this Father was honest. We hide it. We say, Lord, I believe you. I mean, if we took a vote tonight, how many of you believe God would do anything? We'd get a unanimous vote probably. Probably. How many of you believe God could do it for you? Boy, I believe it. And then tomorrow something happens and you say, well, maybe for everybody but me. Seems like everybody, you know, I mean, they're just some people. It seems like God does everything for them and it seems like sometimes you've got his unlisted phone number and he's not answering. And you move from disaster to disaster. Oh, there are times in your life when you say, boy, God can do anything. Those mountaintop experiences... I tell you, this, this church, after we got through with the Don Miller prayer conference, I tell you, this church could have jacked up hell and put a stump under it. <coughs> we would have attacked hell with a water pistol because we believed in the power of prayer that much. There are times after mountaintop experiences, there are times when the glory of God falls and we believe that God can do anything. And then there are those times when we believe it, but we've got a gut feeling way down deep inside that God maybe doesn't care. And maybe he doesn't hear us. Now, do you ever have those feelings? You ever have those times when you really wonder if God cares about what you're going through? You ever feel like you want to bring your situation before God and say, God, I brought my situation to you and you didn't do anything about it? I'm not sure you can. I think you can do it for everybody else in the world, but I'm not sure you love me enough to do it for me. I'm not sure you really care about me enough to do it for me. 
I'm not sure anybody else cares. I cannot recall a time in my life when I was facing any kind of major decision that this wasn't true. Boy, I'd make it, and I'd know God was in it, and then right into just unbelief would just creep in. Boy, God, I know you want me to do something. I know you want me to do this. And I begin to, to move out in that direction, and I just in my heart, I want to chicken out. I want to back up. Well, there have been times when I've had a need, and I knew that the only way it was going to be met was for God to meet it, and God had given me an assurance somewhere in my quiet time or in reading the Word. He'd given me assurance. Hey, don't worry. I'm going to take care of your needs. And I knew it, but I just wanted something tangible to hold on to at the time. Lord, I believe you can do it, but you're going to have to help my unbelief. And Jesus is out there saying, trust me, trust me. And we're saying, Lord, I trust you. But I'm having a hard time doing it right now. You ever have a hard time trusting God? I want you to notice what this father did not say. He did not say, Lord, I don't believe. Help me to believe. He said, Lord, I believe. Help me in those areas where I'm having a hard time believing. You see, for most of us, the issue is not, Lord, I don't believe in you. I don't believe. We've settled that question. The problem for us is we have to believe God more. And do you know when we have to believe God more? And do you know when that issue strikes us? When we are submerged in an issue and a situation where we've got to believe God more. You see, we never trust God until we have to. As long as there's a way of escape, as long as there's something else we can do. You know when you have to ask God to help you to believe more? When you're trying to believe. When you're trying to trust Him. The only way you're going to know the areas where your faith is inadequate is in those areas where God calls you to exercise faith in areas where you're inadequate. God brings us into these situations. And I tell you, it is a humbling experience. It is a humiliating experience sometimes. When in the middle of a faith crisis, when in the middle of a moment when you are doubting, you believe, but you're having trouble believing. It is a humbling experience when you wake up and realize you're not as hot as you think you are. You're not quite as spiritual as you thought you were. You haven't crossed the mountain that you thought you had climbed and gotten all of that behind you. I, I'm amazed at how often I have to keep going back to the simple basics of the Christian life that I should already have behind me. Well, oh, Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? You see, you can't trust God until you realize that He has put you in a situation where the only thing you can do is trust God. And we are like this Father. We're confronted by Jesus and He tells us to believe. And we know that He raised the dead. We know that He calmed the storm. We know that He healed the sick and that He cast out demons. But what about us? I mean, those were big things. And he was there in the flesh. What about now when I can't see him and feel him and, and touch him? What's he going to do for me now? How is he going to meet my need now? How is he going to overcome this situation now? But the question is never God's ability. It is our willingness to trust him. It's not God's ability. He says all things are possible. What are, what are you willing to believe God for?
You see, if you and I fail to see God come through, it is not because the Lord fails. It is because we fail to trust Him. It's not because the preacher didn't tell us everything we needed to know. It's not because uh, somebody didn't pray for us like they should have. The problem lies with us as it lied with this father. Father, what happens to your son is conditioned on your faith. Do you believe that I can do this? And so every one of us comes down to this moment when the bottom line of our life becomes, are we willing to trust God? Are we able to trust God? The issue becomes as it has always been, faith. Now, doubt is not always bad. You see, doubt drove John the Baptist to go and ask Jesus, send his disciples to say, Now, I've seen everything, but I just need to know, are you the Messiah? Or do I look for another one? You see, we get so pious and so spiritual and so otherworldly, and we, we float around in this hyper-spirituality of ours that, that we've caught on to by some of our charismatic friends, and we just kind of float across in a daze and just praise God for everything. And I'm going to tell you something. There are times if you get just real honest with God when doubt has hit you a left hook and you're laying on the canvas and wondering what hit you. But what happens there is crucial. You can either lie down on the canvas and quit and give up and quit believing in God, or you can get up and stand up to the test. Faith is standing up to the test. It is believing God. It is saying, Lord, I believe, but you're going to have to help me to believe a lot more. Now go back to the text. Jesus asked the Father, How long has this boy been like this? And the Father says, Since childhood. Lord, he's been like this all his life. Now, I want you to picture the situation. Jesus is not asking for information. He is trying to remind this father that the situation is hopeless unless Jesus does something. Jesus doesn't need this information. He knows how long the boy's been like this. He's got all the information he needs. What he's trying to get the Father to, to admit is that circumstances have always been this way, and by every outward appearance, circumstances will always be this way, and nothing will change. Nothing's going to be different. He's been like this forever, Lord, and it looks like he's going to be like this forever and ever. It doesn't look like it's ever going to change. The situation from the human perspective was hopeless. There was no sense of Hope. There was no sense that he had anybody to turn to for help. And you see, one of the reasons that God puts us in situations where our faith is tested is he, because he wants us to remove every other avenue except his will and his word and his way. And God will not meet the need until we acknowledge to him, Lord, my situation, in my flesh, and in my reasoning, and as best I can see it, is hopeless. There's no way out. And if you don't do something, I'm going to die right here. If you don't come through, there is no hope. 
It is where we cast ourselves on the love and the omnipotence of God and we say, God, there is no other answer for us but you. And so he comes to this father and he sees the heart of this father. And I want you to notice he doesn't even answer the father. He just turns immediately and he rebukes the demon and he commands it to come out. Did you notice that Jesus did not offer ten principles on trusting God? Now I want you to write down a little note in your Bible or on your note page somewhere. By that verse where he cast the demon out, just write down a little note and it needs to say something like this. Jesus did not lecture the man into faith He blessed him into faith. He didn't give him a lecture. He blessed him. He didn't say, now if you go practice these ten principles, you'll have faith. He just answered the man's request. He did for the man what the man couldn't do for himself. He made hope in a hopeless situation. Jesus did not lecture the man into faith. He blessed him into it. He did the one thing that he could do to help his unbelief. And what was that? Cast the demon out. What would do more for that man's unbelief than anything else? I'll tell you what it would do is for his son to be healed from the demonic oppression. You know what that tells me? That tells me that sometimes even when your faith and my faith is weak, God, just because He's God, may sometimes move a mountain just to surprise you. Just to sit back in heaven and prop His feet up and say, (laughs) they hadn't got it yet, have they? Oh, their faith is so weak. They're worried about so many things. But I tell you, there's just enough in them. I think I'll move this mountain out of the way just to surprise them. You know what Jesus does for us? Now watch me. He normally blesses us when we least deserve it. That's what He did with His Father. Lord, I believe you, but you're going to have to help my unbelief. You know what we would do? We'll come back when you can believe, with no questions. But Jesus did for this Father something that He didn't deserve. Ron Dunn says, He rebukes the poverty of our faith by the abundance of His grace. When we exercise faith in God, when we ask God to help us to believe more, then we turn the situation over to God. He says in verse 19, bring him to me. Jesus wants to take control of our situation. He wants to demonstrate his power. He wants to prove his faithfulness. He wants to honor the hurts and the longings of our heart. But the issue is not, will he do it? Can he do it? The issue is, will we believe that he can do it? Well, we believe for us that He can do it. I remember one of the first times I met Manly Beasley. He was uh, 
talking to me about a time when he had been at a church that I was on staff at. He said, you know, he said, I came over and spoke at this church one time a few years back. It was about two or three years before I came on staff there. And he said, I came over and spoke one night. He said, they were having a serious debt problem. He said, they owed about $185,000. And he said, and I just preached for 10 minutes, told them to do whatever God tells you to do, and sat down. And they almost paid off the debt that night. Folks, you know what our problem is? Our problem is not the sufficiency of God. Our problem's us. We don't believe God can do it. And so we're running around trying to find a disciple who can somehow help us. And they can't do it, and they can't do it, and this committee can't do it, and this group can't do it, and this staff member can't do it, and this deacon can't do it. And we're running around talking to everybody except the one person we need to be talking to. And that's the Lord Jesus. Lord, I believe you can do anything. But I'm just having trouble believing it right now. Is that where you are? See, that's where I've been for a while. And I believe God owns cattle on a thousand hills. I believe He can do whatever He wants to do. I believe if we need it, He can just dig up a little bit of gravel off the streets of heaven made out of gold, throw it down to us, and put it in the bank if He wants to. I believe God can do that. But I tell you, when I get the budget receipts on Monday morning, I'm having a little trouble believing Him. And you know what he's saying to me? This is just to me. He may not be saying it to you. You know what he's saying to me? You just don't trust me, do you? You don't really believe that I can handle it. You don't really believe that I'm in control. You're just not there yet. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And whatever it is that you're going through, it may be your own personal finances, it may be your job, it may be your health, it may be your family. I'm going to tell you, there's only one answer. And that is bring it to Jesus. Because if you take it anywhere else, you're going to still be filled with unbelief. Only when you take it to Jesus and He does it in spite of you, will you be blessed in the process. And there are times when Jesus just blesses me, not because I deserve it, but because I need it. I least deserve it. And He seems to give me the most. Finally, I want us to see a prayerless church or a house of prayer. Mark chapter 9, verse 28. And when He had come into the house, His disciples questioned Him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Matthew adds, by prayer and fasting. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, don't you know the disciples were embarrassed? I mean, they had flopped. This was one crusade that they were not going to write up in their quarterly mail out to all their contributors and say, well, we blew it on this one. I mean, they just wanted to get this behind them, but in private. They didn't want to ask him in public because they didn't want to be rebuked by him. In private, they went to him and said, Lord, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer. He was not saying that this kind only comes out by magical, hocus-pocus prayer. He was not saying that if you blow on people 
or if you'll hit them on the head, or if you use some phrase that God has to work according to that. The tense of the words that he uses there is he says, this time will not come out by anything except a lifestyle of prayer. Not just a quick one-minute prayer. But the kind of problems that we're talking about here are the kind of problems that God has to get us immersed in a personal discipline of prayer, praying in everything, praying at all times, praying without ceasing, seeking the mind of God, searching the heart of God, longing for what God is doing and what He wants to do. And He says, until you get to that point, you're not going to have the power that you need. See, here's what I think happens. I think it is easy for us to come to church and assume that because we've got good facilities, good Sunday school teachers, a good staff, because we worship, because we sing, because we believe the Bible, because the Bible's taught from this pulpit, because the Bible's taught in our classrooms, and because we've got a lot of good things going, and because we believe in world evangelization and missions, I think we just kind of expect to show up, sit, and watch it happen. And I think a lot of us come to church that way. Okay, here we are. Now, God, you do something. And you know why he didn't do it? Like he could do it? Because we're full of unbelief. Oh, it's not that we doubt that he can do it. It's just we believe so much in ourselves and our church and our structure and our staff and our preacher and our stuff and our abilities and our money that he can't do it. See, our problem is not our belief. The problem is what we're believing in. We just kind of think that because things are so good that he's obligated to do it. But my friend, things are only good as long as we are obligated to him in prayer. And I promise you, I haven't tracked it, but I guarantee you this church rises and falls on the consistency of people in the prayer chapel and in their prayer closets at home. It does not rise and fall on the months of the year when people give more than others. It does not rise and fall on when people move into this community. I promise you that by, based on what I understand about God's Word, this church rises and falls by how much praying is done for it. And you know why I know that? Because every time I see us gathered to pray, I see the blessings of God poured out. And every time I see us trying to go through the motions and just trying to gut it out and flesh it out and do it in the best of our ability, I see God begin to squeeze us a little tighter to make us get back on our knees. Oh, it's so easy when you've got so much talent to not have to pray. When you've got so much ability to not have to pray. But the power is not within us. The power comes from above. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we know so much about prayer that the reason we are prayerless and the reason we are powerless is because what we know has not been put into what we do. 
We know a lot more than we're doing. We could teach a lot more on prayer than we're praying. And if God were to give most of us a grade in our prayer lives tonight, it would be that we are failing the course of prayer. The only thing that Jesus ever did that the disciples wanted to know how to do the disciples didn't want to know how to cast out demons. The disciples didn't want to know so much how to heal the sick. They wanted to know how to have power, like Jesus had power. They wanted the power of God on them like it was on Jesus, God in the flesh. And Jesus said, I tell you how it comes. It comes by prayer. And listen, if Jesus had to get alone with his Father to get power, how much more do we have to get alone to get power with the Father? But you know as well as I do, it is easier for us to organize than it is to agonize. And we always have a choice. We can walk around and every time a board comes up, we can get a group over here to come nail that board down. And Just about the time we get that nail board nailed down, some other board over here pops up and we go over here and deal with this crisis and we move from crisis to crisis instead of moving from faith to faith. Can I give you four suggestions on how we're supposed to pray? And then we're through. First of all, we pray according to His Word. Don't ever ask God to do anything that's not according to Scripture. The man who prays scripturally prays successfully. You pray according to His Word. Secondly, you pray according to His will. Not my will, but thine be done. You pray according to His will. You pray according to His word. You pray according to His will. You pray according to your need. According to your need. Vance Havner said, We do not always want what we need or need what we want. Pray according to your need. Well, I don't want to bother the Lord with that. I can probably figure that out on my own, and that's why God's not blessing. Because we're not bothering the Lord with it. We're trying to figure it out on our own. And then finally, you pray according to faith. Jesus said several times in the Scripture, according to your faith, be it unto you. In other words, what He was saying was, your blessings, your power... The authority of God on everything you do hinges on one word, faith. And faith causes you to pray, and pray causes you to have faith, and you get in on the cycle of heaven, and God begins to do something supernatural in your midst. I've got a real funny feeling that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of people in this room that your problem is not what do you believe God can do anything. Your problem is do you believe God can do it for you? Do you believe He can come through for you? Do you believe, do you believe He can meet your need? And when you're all by yourself and you drop your super spiritual language and you drop all the pat answers that you've learned at church, the tears swell up in your eyes and the pain comes into your soul and you say, Lord, I believe.
but you're going to have to help me believe more because right now I'm having trouble believing you. And until we get to that point, we will not believe that all things are possible to him who believes. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.